Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Our text this morning is found in verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9. I ask that you follow along as I read our text today. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken, for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. My Savior, I thank you from the depths of my being for your wondrous grace and love and bearing my sin in your own body on the tree. So may your cross be to me as the tree that sweetens the bitterness of this life, as the rod that blossoms with life and beauty, as the brazen serpent that calls forth the look of faith. And by your cross, Crucify my every sin. Use it to increase my intimacy with you. Make it the ground of all my comforts, the liveliness of all my duties, the sum of all your gospel promises, the comfort of all my afflictions, the vigor of my love, thankfulness, grace, and every essence of my religion. And by it, give me that rest without rest, the rest of ceaseless praise. As we come to a passage such as this, may our hearts overflow with ceaseless praise for you, our Savior, who bore our sins. For you, our Lord, For you, our Savior, 
drawn us to the Father. When we would not, could not come, you alone drew us. And you bore the cross so that you might taste death, not just death physically, but eternally in the place of your people. And you might give your people life. And as you have given us life, you have so then appointed a cross for us to take up and carry a cross before you would give us a crown. You have appointed it to be each of your people's portions. We confess our self-love hates it. Our sinful nature, our fleshliness, as it looks upon it, as it seeks to reason it out, recoils from it. Without Your grace, we cannot bear it, walk with it, or profit by it. And so, we declare that, O oh, blessed cross, what mercies You bring with You to us. That this cross is only esteemed hateful by our rebellious will. Heavy because we shrink from your load to live life fighting against our former oppressors of sin in this world and our own flesh. Crucify myself daily. Oh, what a load it is. And yet we look to our Savior who like a sheep to his shearer bore His cross willingly with grace. And so we pray, teach us, gracious Lord and Savior, that with Your cross You promise to send grace so that we truly may bear it patiently. And in You, truly the cross that we each must bear is a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. For on your cross you bore eternal weights and now we share in that blessing. And our crosses are but temporary reminders of what you have done for us. So we, may we bear them patiently with grace. We pray, as we look to your word now, you reveal to us that graciousness with which our Lord and Savior bore his cross and the results that occur from such a glorious, such a glorious sacrifice. Pray this not for ourselves only, we pray this for your church across the globe, that we would see Jesus and exalt him, that we would see the cross and find find our only salvation in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're continuing our series called The Works of Christ Alone Save. 
and uh, we're looking at uh, Isaiah 52 and 53, and so last week we looked at the very end of Isaiah 52, and we saw that the servant who we understand with New Testament eyes is Jesus Christ has acted wisely and brought about the revelation of the gospel to not just his his, his people represented here in the book of Isaiah, which would be Israel. Israel is the representation here of the people of God. But rather, we see here within uh, Isaiah 52 that, that it goes beyond this, that he sprinkles, he sprinkles his gospel on many nations. And so kings shut their mouths and rather listen uh, than speak and hear about this gospel. They begin to see it. They begin to understand it, which I think is connected to the beginning there of 53, where it says, who has believed what he has heard from us? That They understand it in such a way that they believe it. They put their faith and trust in it. In essence, even as we sit here as non-Jewish people, we are fulfillments of this very text in Isaiah 52. Now we, we, we go into 53 and we see, so who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has this arm of the Lord been revealed? ultimately been revealed to God's people as we looked at. And so those from all nations, from many nations, it says there. And so we've been able to see that God graciously reveals his salvation to us through Christ. And it's only through Christ that we know his salvation. It is only through Jesus Christ that salvation comes to us. And so the work of Christ is one that reveals salvation Today, we're going to continue to look at the work of Christ, as it is the title of our series, The Works of Christ Alone Save. And uh, today's title is The Work of Christ That Bears Our Sin. The Work of Christ That Bears Our Sin. And we truly, as human beings, rebels against God, rebelling against His ways and His will and His glory, Definitely need to look at this today. Definitely need to see this today. Even as Christians, we need to be reminded that it is Jesus Christ who has borne our sins. That's who we look to and put our trust in. The main point of today's sermon is this, that Christ is humanity's only assurance of defeating sin. Christ is humanity's only assurance of defeating sin. Last week we looked at Christ is humanity's only assurance of finding salvation. This week, he's the only assurance of defeating sin. I believe this, the text today will help us to understand uh, how Jesus Christ himself is this, is this defeater of sin. And to, so we're going to ask three questions of our text today. We're going to start with, what is humanity's future apart from Christ? As we look into this text, what do we see about humanity apart from Christ and therefore helping us understand our desperate need for Him? And then in turn, how does Christ bring assurance, the specific assurance of, of this defeat of sin? And then thirdly, how should humanity respond? So in light of that, how should humanity respond? So, And hopefully as we go through this, we'll, we'll see that Christ is our only hope. He is our only assurance that our sin can be defeated and be dealt with. So let's look at that first question. What is humanity's future apart from Christ? 
As we look into this text, we see that there's not this direct statement of, of what humanity is like, but there is definitely plenty of indirect statements that help us to understand what kind of people humanity is. We see that we are people in verse 4 of griefs, griefs and sorrows. Of griefs and sorrows. He's coming to bear our griefs, to bear our sorrows, so we must be people of those griefs and sorrows. And those sound like stuff that we've probably face. We understand that when we face loss, when we face betrayal, when we face things like that, we feel this grief and sorrow. But ultimately, those kind of things are really not what those words are pointing towards. Just what what happens outside of us and what happens to us that brings us grief and sorrow. But really, they're meant to convey our feelings of guilt, our shame. The grief and sorrow we feel for our sin. And why do I say that? Well, notice what the parallel words are. When he bears them, what? His wounds. He is wounded, verse 5, for our what? Transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. And we see in verse 6, all we like sheep, have gone astray, have turned everyone to his own way. And what happens? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These griefs and sorrows that he bears and that he carries are the griefs and sorrows, the guilt and shame from our sin. And that we should rightly feel. And yet Christ has come to remove those from us all connected to these transgressions and these iniquities, but that are ultimately summed up in this picture of sheep. Sheep who have gone astray. Who have turned everyone to his own way. This is one way the Bible seeks to help us understand our rebellion. You see, sheep have this tendency to like to go astray. They're you know, we could call them dumb, but they're not really dumb. They're, they're pretty smart creatures. They have a way of figuring out how to get out of just about anything that people put them in. And so you read these blogs about these, these sheep herders and these uh, uh, sheep farmers, and they're just like, you know, you've got to always tend them because they're always, they, the smallest hole they can get out of, the smallest thing, they, which reminds me of my dog. He's that way too. And uh, so... You know, I, I say it this way, he's, he's not dumb, but he's stupid. <laughs> so he knows how to get out of everything, but then it never ends well for him. Like, he doesn't learn. Like, him being out on his own, not a good idea, right? The food comes from me, usually, okay? So, um, and the same thing with sheep. Like, they're not dumb animals, but they can make stupid choices. And that's what we see here of us. But, but when we read that all we like sheep have gone astray, I mean, we think, you know, we, we were like distracted by something and kind of just, just happened to go away. Like, we just, we just happened to, to be straying. You know, we're, we're skipping off and, you know, like a little, little kid, you know, they, they get excited about going to the park or whatever and they just start playing and they're skipping off 
And then all of a sudden they look around and they're like, where's mom and dad? They weren't intentionally trying to go astray, but now they're lost. And we might read into that, you know, that first phrase, all we like sheep have gone astray, and think, well, you know, I wasn't really trying to go astray, but I kind of ended up lost and I couldn't see him. And then we read the second phrase and we realize that's not what's, what Isaiah is intending here, right? We have turned everyone to his own way. We have deliberately gone the way we wanted to go. We have deliberately left the God who we are meant to love and serve and obey. And it all culminates in the representative example of Adam in the garden when God has created this whole garden for him and told him he could eat all the fruits of the tree in the garden, yet not this one. And yet Adam goes astray by turning to his own way. He chooses to live his way rather than God's way. I mean, it's ultimately what Paul refers to in Romans 1 when he writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to know the best way. Proverbs writes, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. God gave them up. We have turned our own way. As sheep, we have gone astray. And that's where we are. All of us begin life in this place. And that's what David says when he says, he says, at his very conception, at his very conception, he had sin within him. This is where we all begin as sheep that have gone astray, as sheep that have turned uh, towards our own way. We desire our own way. We want to do things our own way. We are not submissive to God. We are not willing to place ourselves under God. We are not willing to honor God, give thanks to Him. Um, and therefore, claiming to be wise, we have become fools. And in fact, we see some of the descriptions of our foolishness here. When the Messiah finally came, the response of God's people, of those who are meant to represent His people on earth, Israel, is what Isaiah prophesied. When He came, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. No beauty that we should desire Him. Okay, the, the Messiah comes. The truly God, truly man comes. And we don't care about looking at Him. And we don't really want Him. 
He was despised in verse 3, and we esteemed him not. We, that's the word esteemed. We did not place value in him. He was not valuable to us. Which is amazing in light of the response that we saw in Isaiah 52. <laughs> These kings who had, had this sprinkling of the gospel from the work of Christ on them, what did they do? They, they shut their mouths to listen to this gospel. They, they began to see who the glory of Jesus Christ and who He is, and they understood it and believed it. But Israel, when Jesus is walking in their midst, cannot see will not look, do not desire, do not value Him. For they have turned and gone astray. Even the very best of people representing God's people are in need of a Savior. They have gone astray. Everyone. Which helps us understand every single person. Every single one has gone astray. And then he goes on to describe, it's interesting, so in these first verses, he talks in this we. So he's talking about Israel. He's talking about this representation of God's people. We, we did not look at him. We did not desire him. We did not esteem him. We, like sheep, have gone astray. When you get down to verse 8, what do we see? As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And then 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, with the righteous man in his death. And there's this, there's this we as God's people, and there's this they. Even those who are not a part of God's people, what did they consider? That he had come for their transgressions? No, they buried him in a grave with the wicked. They saw no value in him either. Rome transfers the body over to uh, Nicodemus to be buried. Here's a man that seems like the Jews didn't like. We killed. Go bury him. He's dead. Bury him with the rest of people. The rest of mankind. Just like the rest of mankind. Although he had done no violence. Although no deceit was, from his, was in his mouth. What are you saying? He was sinless. I mean, Pilate himself proclaims, I find no fault in him. Why? Why would we kill him? There's, there's nothing here that demands such a verdict. And yet, he's transferred over. He's killed. He's put in a grave. Prophetic. Utterances here, he's buried with the wicked like the rest of mankind and with a rich man in his death, placed in a rich man's tomb, we know. Fulfillment of this prophecy that this is the response of humanity. They did not honor Jesus as God. That's where we all start in our sinfulness. We are not smart enough to save ourselves. We're definitely not good enough to save ourselves. Left to ourselves, 
we will have to answer to God for our own sins because we will not look for a Savior. And that's really the answer. What is humanity's future apart from Christ? Each person is sinful and must answer to God for their own sins apart from the work of Christ. That's where we are. People who do not value Jesus Christ. People who ultimately don't consider what he came to do, die for the transgressions of his people. That ultimately would just bury him as another human being who, who proclaimed some great things but died. Apart from the work of Jesus Christ, we are lost. We do not recognize, we will not recognize what Christ has done for us. Second question, how does Christ bring assurance? How does Christ bring assurance? Well, he humbles himself in verse 2, grew up as a young man, didn't come in a form of majesty, didn't come with his royal heavenly power and authority, but rather humbly as a servant, willingly despised and rejected, a man of sorrows or pains, acquainted with grief. Here we see the kind of sorrows that we want to, we want to read into verse 4, but shouldn't be. Here we find the kind of sorrows that exist because of what is happening externally. Jesus Christ, we're told in verse 9, did no violence and had no deceit in His mouth. He did not feel guilt or shame for sin because He was sinless. And yet He felt the sorrow and grief of sin that existed around Him. He watched the pains of sinful actions that hurt others and in itself even. He felt the sting of betrayal. He knew what it, what it felt like to lose someone you love through death. Like we, we don't know it. I mean, jo- Joseph's never mentioned it, but it's very likely that, that, that Jesus experienced the loss of his father. But we do know when it comes to Lazarus, even though he knows he's going to raise him from the dead, what does he do? He stands before the tomb and he weeps. Jesus understands the sorrows and griefs we experience as a result of the sin around us. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knows the cost of sin. He's one from whom men hide their faces, who was despised. He was not valued, and yet what? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Here's, here's what. He understands the grief and sorrow we experience from sin that that affects us outwardly. But then here, Jesus willingly, in verse 4, takes the sorrow that he cannot feel because he's sinless. He takes the guilt and shame of our transgressions and our iniquities. He takes them upon himself even as we looked at Him and considered Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now those those are not positive things. Those are not we valuing the fact that God has given Him to die on a cross. No, these are are us looking at Him and saying, you know what, You, 
God's punishing you and you're getting what you deserve. We don't know. This is Job's friends. You know, Job's suffering here. And, 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 and Job is, God declares him sinless. And yet they're like, you have to have some sin. Because God wouldn't do this to you if you didn't have sin. What's your sin? Come on, tell us. This is us assuming God has a reason to strike down Jesus because of something he has done. And yet that is not the case. Rather, he takes on the guilt and the shame of our transgressions. What He's wounded for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. On him was put the chastisement, the, the punishment that brings us peace. So the eternal punishment for the weight of our sin. So apart, apart from the work of Christ, we are sinful and we must answer to God for our sin. And in Scripture, the answer to that is that we be eternally punished, eternally damned, eternally separated from God and all the joy and all the glory and all the wonder of who God is. What we read here, upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He bears the eternal punishment so that when we stand before God, we will not answer for our sins, but rather we will look to Christ. Leads us to our answer that on the cross, Christ bore the punishment and the shame for the sins of His people. On the cross, Jesus takes this upon Himself. So that by His stripes, by His wounds, we are healed. Jesus doesn't need healing. Jesus doesn't need to pay any punishment. He is sinless. No violence, no deceit in his mouth. And yet, he bears the wounds, the stripes, the chastisement to bring us peace and to bring us healing. This is what he comes to do. And then in turn, it leads us to the end of verse 6. The glorious truth, the imputation of our sins to Jesus Christ as he takes them upon Himself as He bears them. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And again, it's important for us to remember who the us is here. It's this representation of God's people. All of God's people will have their sins laid upon Jesus And that truly is our only hope of salvation. There's no other hope offered in this section of text to deal with our sins. And in fact, as you look through the whole Bible, there is no other hope. Some people have sought to look to the Mosaic Law and say, well, man, if, if someone could have just kept the law perfectly, then they, could have, they would have been saved. They wouldn't need their sins laid upon Christ. And to that I say, true, if you could keep it, but no one could. 
other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is why He is, he is the substitute. He is the one who is able to take our chastisement and become our peace. But no one else could. And that's why the sacrificial system is part of the Mosaic Law. Because nobody could keep it perfectly. They had to go and they had to sacrifice animals to cover their sins. And all that points to what? Jesus Christ is the ultimate covering as God laying his sin, or our sins upon Him. And that truly is what imputation is. We can't put our sins on Jesus. We can't demand that Jesus bear our sins. It's like we, you know, the example of you know, us having committed such a crime that we're sitting on death row. I mean, that's, that's our rebellion as human beings. We are awaiting trial from God so that we will be condemned justly for an eternity of the second death. So we're on death row waiting. We can't stand there and demand, hey, I demand that so-and-so over there to take my place. Now you can yell that in your cell all you want, but guess what? It's not going to happen. It's not how it works. We don't place our sins on Jesus. We can't. We can't demand it. We don't deserve it. There's no rights here for us. Rather, what does this text say? The Lord has laid it on. This is the grace of God. And we would do well to remember this. What we we have experienced as Christians is grace upon grace. Undeserved, unearned. There's no rights here for us. Our rights are to be condemned because we have turned to our own way. And yet the radical response of the gospel, when, when this text should say, all we like sheep have gone astray, have turned everyone to our, our, his own way, and the Lord has destroyed us. Because that's what we deserve. The radical de- declaration of the gospel, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Radical. Love, mercy, grace being demonstrated. And then as we consider again the chastisement that brings us peace, justice has been served. The debt no longer remains. There is no punishment left for those on whom their sins have been borne by Jesus. He's given Himself for us. Willingly, as verse 7 implies, willingly taking on this punishment, this death. The purpose, as verse 8 implies, that we were meant to consider He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of My people. This is why He dies, so that our sins might be paid for, so that our shame might be removed. But then thirdly, how should humanity respond to such grace? How should we respond? And I'm going to start at the end here and work my way back. First of all, as in verse 8, as it implies, we should then consider. 
So my answer here, each person must consider, turn towards, esteem, and believe the saving work of Christ. So as he asks, who will consider? Who will consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? We must consider it. We must take it in. We must hear it and see it. Let our minds wrap itself around this reality of Jesus Christ giving Himself as the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of His people. We must consider it. And then as we have from our birth, and as David, David implies from conception, we've been sheep who have gone astray, who have turned everyone to our own way. We, would, we must turn then back towards the shepherd of our soul. We must turn back towards the one on whom our sins were laid. We must turn away from sin and all its, its trappings and all of its, its desires and, and all of the, the, the pulling upon our own hearts to go our own way. We must reject it. We cannot be our own Savior. We cannot be our own King. We cannot be our own Lord. Uh, these things that we pursue cannot be real treasure to us. We must turn away from all of those and turn to Christ and place ourselves in submission to Him. Your way is the only way. Your salvation is the only salvation. Jesus is the only Savior. Jesus is the only King. Let's turn towards the saving work of Christ. And then in turn, we must esteem Him. We must value Him. Whereas once we esteemed Him not, now, as we consider the sacrifice, as we turn away from our old way towards Him, we see His glory. We see His grace. We see how the truly God became truly man so that He might taste death for every man who would put their faith and trust in Him. And this is glorious and this is good. as we find our value in Him, the value in any other thing we think might possibly in some way save and satisfy us loses its savor. We esteem Him. We desire after Him as we look towards Him and ultimately then believe in the saving work of Christ who has believed what He has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Declaring again our dependence on the work of Christ as we looked at last week. It is only through Him that salvation is even revealed to us in a way that we can understand and embrace. But, but now the question is, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? And as we present the Gospel today, this revelation is going out towards you. And as we pray that the Holy Spirit would regenerate your heart, our call then is to respond to it. As you consider it, as you turn towards it, as you begin to value it, believe in Him today. 
He is the sacrifice, the only sacrifice for your sin that can save you from eternal death and bring you eternal life. How can we connect this to everyday life? First of all, are you a member of gospel community? Again, not, not a member of this church or another church. We're talking about being part of God's people, part of God's family. We've been saved by Jesus Christ. So the call for this is, if you're not a member of gospel community, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you, trusting in His grace alone, trusting that it's through faith alone, it's not your works, it is Christ's works, 100%. If that's not you, turn and trust in Him today. Consider what He has done. Turn away from your sins. Turn towards His sacrifice. Value Him and believe in Him alone. That is the call today to each of us if we are not in Christ. Second question, what can we know about God? We can know here that God always had a glorious, sovereign plan to sacrifice and save. This is God's plan that He would send His Son to bear our grief, carry our sorrow, to have our iniquities laid on Him. God always had this glorious sovereign plan which speaks to God's grace and God's mercy. How undeserving it is and yet He's willing to It demonstrates how God is able to use chastisement, punishment to bring peace or wounds to bring healing. God is able to take that which we see as, uh, and rightly so, as utterly despicable, the, the treatment of His Son, but he is, He's able to take that. The most despicable of treatments because His Son had done nothing at all to deserve it in any way, and yet use it to bring about His, his, his greatest salvation. I mean, this is the kind of God we serve. This is the, the sovereignty that God has over this. And so we may, we may wonder, you know, uh, well, uh, my, sins, my sins are pretty bad. My iniquity? Awful. My, my, my guilt and shame over my sin? It runs so deep. Can He truly bear this? God of such power and sovereignty plans for His Son to bear the weight of sin, whatever sin. He is able to bear it. What can we enjoy about God? We can marvel at the fact that He, he bears every kind of sin. There's, there's no sin too great for Jesus to bear, to, for Jesus to take on, for, for it to be imputed to Him and removed from us. Marvel at His amazing sacrifice. He humbles Himself to do this. I mean, you read through a text like this and you're like, why would Jesus do it? Why would someone put themselves through this? And the answer, 
I can't explain it entirely, but I know that the greatest of commandments comes to our aid in answering this because Jesus loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. And we were his neighbor. Huh? Can you imagine? I mean, you pondering that? This, this marveling in the amazing sacrifice that, that Jesus would, would treat us as his neighbor to such a degree as to give his life for us. And the results are what? Peace and healing? Peace with God and healing as we we're being recovered and transformed and changed in this new creation in Jesus Christ for good works. This healing that is taking place in our life. Peace with God or justification. We stand righteous before God in Christ. Our healing and sanctification as we, as we begin to live life more and more uh, under God's control and the control of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we should worship Him for this and, and just be amazed by, by the peace and healing that Jesus Christ can bring to our life. And how can we glorify God? Well, trust in the work of Christ. You say, oh, I'm a Christian. I've trusted. But you still sin. So when you sin, trust in the work of Christ. Trust in the work of Christ. Remember, turn to the work of Christ when you're tempted to sin. When you're tempted to sin, remember you were once a sheep that strayed. I don't, I, I'm not going down that road again. <laughs> we're, Stand against sin by remembering the work of Christ. Consider Christ's work as the only answer when you're sinned against. So when you sin, trust in Christ's work. When you're tempted to sin, remember what He's done for you. He's, he's, he's brought you back into the fold of His sheep. Don't, don't go wandering off. And when you're sinned against, consider the work of Christ as the only answer. Here's what happens sometimes when we sin against. We can get bitter. We can get angry. And there are some right consequences that occur when we're sinned against. And yet, what do we know? The only answer to sin in this life is Jesus Christ. When we're sinned against, maybe we need to be reminded of verse 7. When he was oppressed and afflicted, he opened out his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter like a sheep. Before his shears asylum, he opened out his mouth. And rather than take vengeance or whatever, we give our vengeance to God. Paul writes in Romans, maybe it's in helping us feel the empathy that we should have for the one who is sinning. They need Christ. They're unsaved. They, they need Christ. Like this sin is just reaffirming the reality exists that they're going to be eternally damned for, for these sins. And in turn, if they're a Christian, then, then well, I consider the work of Christ. It's, this is the answer. Like, I don't want to leave my Christian brother in their sin, even though they're sinning against me. And I, and I want to respond and react in bitterness and anger and, 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 and maybe vengeance. And yet, I need to see that they desperately need to look again at the face of Christ. The one who has borne their sin. Then we need to declare Christ as the only one who can bear the punishment of sin. Everywhere, always. What is the hope of this world? 
and the brokenness of this world and the sinfulness of this world. Sure, there, there are certain things that we need to do uh, politically or pragmatically. There are certain things that we can be a part of, and, and God calls us to action in many ways. But, but ultimately, what is truly the answer to the brokenness of this world? And we always have got to use our activity and, and, and in the area has always got to point back to it is that Christ is the answer. Ultimately, He brings salvation from sin. He brings peace. He brings healing. And we should never forget that. Let's pray. Father, we come. We thank you for these truths. We ask now that you would bless us as we close in song. Give grace to us as we sing your glorious praises as the one who has saved us. May we never move past the fact that our sin was laid upon Christ. And it is through him that we have peace and we are healed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.